paying attention to your body and honoring where your body is at. Some people need to take three months off after they give birth. So really like not judging yourself, not comparing yourself. But the reason that I'm sharing like my story is because there might be somebody that wanted to get back on their bike, but they were looking at this general guideline and, and maybe they missed out on something that they could have done. There's something that I say, the work is the reward. And what that means is that a lot of times we look at this outcome of something like, oh, I'm going to like finish Leadville or I'm going to run a marathon or like we're looking at these outcomes and we're waiting to feel a certain way whenever we achieve that outcome. But really, you're not even entitled to the outcome. Like you might line up for Leadville and things might happen and you might not finish. So what is the reward here? It's the work. It's, it's who you become along the way. It's what you do every single day. Hi, I'm Dirk Friel, co-founder of Training Peaks, and you're listening to the Training Peaks Coachcast. I'll be sitting down with expert endurance coaches and amazing athletes, each with special stories to tell. At its heart, Training Peaks is about helping you create the best journey possible towards your endurance goals. We hope these stories inspire you to get out there, train with purpose, and never be afraid to sign up for that next big challenge. My guest today is Sonia Looney, who is a pro mountain biker, but she describes herself as just a normal person who through hard work, self-belief, determination, and a willingness to fail has accomplished extraordinary things. Sonia has raced mountain bikes across the world in more than 25 countries at the hardest endurance races in places like the Sahara Desert, Himalayas in Nepal, tropical jungles in Asia, and the steppes of Mongolia. Her passion is taking on the hardest and longest races in the world because it's enabled her to help others through her coaching business and her Moxie and Grit Mindset Academy. I hope you enjoy this episode and can learn one new habit or tip which you can apply to your own training today. Sonia Looney, thank you so much for joining me today on the CoachCast. Oh, Derek, it's a pleasure to be here. You know, last time I saw you, we were at 10,000 feet up in Breckenridge <laughs> at the Breck Epic. And uh, like most of my guests, I really only see them from behind. You know, you tend to take off and I'm chasing from behind and never catch you. So I get very motivated by my guests uh, that I have on the show. Um, you're certainly one of those folks that, you know, kind of is certainly at the elite pro level. We have a lot to learn from and also in many other respects of your life, you know, being a recent mother, racing, coming back from, you know, postpartum and all that. And I realize we've never actually had this topic and this feels like oh. a mother's feels like a mother's day special, but something that we should have have covered by now. So yeah, certainly it's about time. Cool. Well, thank you so much. And I am excited to be the first. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, give us some uh, background on you. Um, did you grow up in endurance sports and how did you finally get into cycling? Yeah, it's kind of funny because I was thinking about this the other day. There aren't any endurance athletes of any kind in my family. So I never saw that model to me growing up. And I did the traditional sports growing up. You know, I played soccer and I played soccer on a rep team in middle school and I really wanted to go play soccer in high school, but I had to choose between band and soccer. So I actually chose band, um, marching band, wind ensemble. So I am a quintessential band nerd who played the flute. <laughs> but I didn't find endurance sports until the end of high school. I was playing. I yeah. played varsity tennis as well, but 
I just got inspired. Some, some girls in my math class were just talking about running and I thought, Hmm, running, that sounds kind of cool. I'll, I'll try that. And being all in on my personality, I decided to train for a marathon, um, in my senior year. And I just started running every single day in addition to going to the gym and playing tennis. And I ran a marathon when I was 18 and I didn't really know how to train for running. I just bought like, I think like Hal Higgins book or something back yeah, yeah, then. Yeah. And we know Hal Higgins very well. Yes. Right? We yeah, have trying a lot to figure of his out training how to, plans. <laughs> didn't know how to train. Um, and essentially this happened when I switched to cycling as well, got very overtrained because I just was doing too much because I wanted to be, be my best. And often we think that being my best means overworking. Um, so I ended up going to spin class at the gym cause I got a stress fracture from running and it probably was bad nutrition as well, because back then that wasn't a huge part of the narrative and started going to spin class at the gym. And then some guys at my work. And at the time I was a student intern at Sandia national labs. I was an engineer and they invited me to go mountain biking. So I did. And then they said, Hey, like you want to do a race? There's a, a, the state championships in two weeks in New Mexico. Like you should do this. So I was like, okay, sure. Why not? I'll, I've ran a marathon so I can do anything. I'll, I'll sign up for this race. And that was in, I think I was like in 2003 or 2004 and boom, I was into cycling. <laughs> That's awesome. I think there's, I, I don't know, there's somewhat of a lesson there. The less, you know, the better you are. <laughs> I mean, you didn't wait for the perfect time. You kind of just went after it like yeah i've done a marathon i can do this mountain bike thing um you know that that newbie kind of aspect is such so refreshing to you know when you get into new sports um so then how do you progress from this first mountain bike race to going pro winning 24-hour world championships etc you know how do you how does that progress along how many how many years did, did that take well, I'll first preface this with like my first race. I was the very last person to come in. I signed up at this time. It was like beginner sport expert. It was that kind of structure. Um, yep. I somehow signed up for the sport category, even though it was my first race, because I was the only person in the category. And way back when I had a fixed mindset and thought that I needed the, like, I'll just take the validation, even though I'm not actually fast. <laughs> So I was literally the last person to finish at the race. And I was so stoked. I went and spent my life savings on a real mountain bike. Cause I was riding Ooh. like a, you know, like a Walmart bike or whatever at the time. Right. Right. And I surrounded myself with really important people that were able to mentor me. Um, and that was instrumental in helping me see a broader vision for myself because people around me were like mountain biking, that's a sport. And they were laughing at me that I wanted to pursue this. So there was no support from my immediate, you know, my immediate family or my friends, because nobody knew what that was. And they're like, well, you should be an engineer. That's what you're doing. So surrounding myself with, with mentors and people I could travel with. And then eventually I moved to Boulder, Colorado for, to do my master's degree in electrical engineering, not because I wanted to do my master's degree in electrical engineering, but because I wanted to be a pro mountain biker. So picking a place where I could be around more like-minded people that were way better than me so that I could be pulled up with them and, um, like going to the, the short tracks and doing all those things. That was awesome. And then thereby like having even bigger dreams for myself and trying to keep going for them. And I eventually switched from cross country mountain biking. Cause I was kind of at a plateau to endurance mountain biking. And I was intrigued by hundred mile races and the adventure of going out there and being out there for a really long time and seeing different areas and getting to ride my bike on more terrain than the same, same laps. And it just opened doors for me. And I, I don't, I, it's a long story, so I don't want to like go on forever, but it, it comes back to curiosity and what you said earlier of having that almost beginner's mindset of saying, I'm going to choose myself. I'm not going to wait for, and I actually have recorded a podcast on my own show about the power of picking yourself because 
so many of us wait for somebody to tell us that we're good at something or that we can do something like, Hey, you can be a speaker or you could start a podcast, but really it has to come from us. You have to choose yourself first. And that's how I got into mountain bike racing is I chose myself. That's awesome. Did you have any guidance along the way, any coaches along the way throughout, throughout any, any of your years? Um, the interesting thing about coaching, I have had coaches along the way, but every time I got a coach, I would get overtrained. And I think the reason is because uh, of the mental fatigue that I would take on because I'm not the type to, you know, train and then kick my legs up. And even as a professional rider, I still am not very good at that because I like doing lots of different things. And I like having multiple, um, identities, I guess, or multiple facets to my identity. And I'm, I just love learning. So I'm always iterating and evolving what I'm doing. So taking on that mental load was affecting my physical performance and the coaches, I, I didn't know how to articulate that. So I think that that was causing overtraining because there was an expectation that I'd be able to do more stuff or more training or more intensity. And it just more wasn't better for me. And also I think it's because there wasn't a lot of data available to us back then. I mean, power meters were just like kind of a new thing and heart rate, you know, heart rate was definitely a thing. And so I've been mostly self-coach for my career and I think that coaching is great and a lot of people need coaches and can learn from coaching and I'm not opposed to having a coach, but I've had my best results by coaching myself because I ultimately know my inputs and I can be objective about what's happening for the most part. I mean, surely not, you know, truly objective, but the wisdom from racing for so long has helped me have that perspective so that I can make the right decisions in the moment. So what, what are the key aspects in terms of consistency for you? And when you, you know, are managing your training, what, you know, I guess when we think about consistency, what's the big things you need to get in during the week? Now that you're a mother, let's, let's talk about cycling professionally being a mother, but let's talk about the cycling side of things and the training. What, what are the things you have to get in or that you aim to get in each week? I aim to train six days a week. So that is something that didn't change even through my both pregnancy with with both of my kids. I rode, I mountain biked until the day before each kid was born. And I rode six days a week for the most part with both of the kids. So whether that meant, and in pregnancy, it looks a little bit different. Like I might not be doing the same type of intensity, but doing the consistent training, especially the aerobic training with the benefits that you get from aerobic training, there's, there's more gains to be made, especially when you're pregnant and have all this additional blood volume. And we can talk about that in detail if you want to about the physiological gains that can be made during pregnancy. But as a mom, um, you know, I have my own business and I'm a professional writer and I have two kids and we have very limited childcare and it's that that's incredibly frustrating. So you have to prioritize. So for me, it's about showing up six days a week and being consistent but also honoring where my energy is because I might not be able to do the same level of intensity that I could do pre kids. And a lot of people listening can probably relate with this. Like life is full and there's a lot of demands on our time. So being able to say there is benefit to doing an an easier ride, there's aerobic benefit. And whenever I am feeling up to it, there is a benefit to rising to the occasion and pushing myself. But the hard part is knowing when, when you should do what, when you should do what. And I think that is where a good coach comes in is the art of when you should be pushing yourself and when you shouldn't be pushing yourself. So you as an individual, how often can you push yourself? You know, you're, we'll get into breastfeeding and everything else that related to that, but how much energy do you have left over to train? Are there days that you just simply, I don't have energy today. Um, and how many days a week do you actually add in intensity? 
I do intensity two days a week provided I'm not, you know, recovering from COVID or have anything else going on. If I feel normal, whatever normal means, whenever you're a breastfeeding mom, um, I opt to do intensity two days a week and my intensity, because of my, um, the way that I race, I do mostly stage races and long races. I like kind of like the sweet spot interval training, you know, the, the 10 to 20 minute intervals. And I find that my FTP has been most affected at doing that. But there's also the mental component of that, because whenever you're racing for a really long time, you need to be able to mentally handle the load to push yourself like that. And then as the race gets closer, I, you know, it's periodized training. I start doing shorter, more intense intervals. And then I'll look at the event and I'll say, what kind of specific training do I need to do? Like for Breck Epic, for example, I lived in Colorado for eight years. I've raced at altitude a lot. But now I live at sea level. Like I literally live at zero feet. And when I came back from Breck Epic, it felt it felt like really different to be riding. I, it was like I could breathe again all of a sudden. So I did some <laughs> respiratory training to try to prepare for Breck Epic so that I, I would be able to cope a little bit better with the altitude. And that's worked for me. I did a race in Columbia in 2017 and that went up to 14,000 feet as well. And I did this similar type of respiratory training and it really helped. What, what is that respiratory yeah, training? I don't know how nerdy we want to get. Um, no, let's go I, for it. Initially I was using a device called the Spiro Tiger. So it's basically a spirometer Um, and there's a new device out called breathe way better, which is way more affordable and a lot more simple, but basically you get a bag that's sized towards what you think your lung capacity is. So three or four liters, and then you can train yourself. So aside from altitude training, you can train your respiratory system so that you can increase your FEV one. So the amount of, um, the amount of CO2 exhaled in the, in your first breath or the first, I think it's the first second, um, but for altitude training, I actually did some hypoxic training based on some research that was done with World War I pilots where they would go up, um, they would drive their SpO2 numbers, their overall oxygenation in their body down, and then they come back down again. So essentially what you do is you have this respiratory training device, you have an SpO2 monitor on your finger, and you do like wall squats or step ups, or you just walk around while you're limiting um, the amount of oxygen you can get. So, you know, breathing, breathing less oxygen, clamping off the bag. And then holding it there, holding it at like 90 SpO2 or an 88 SpO2 for a period of time and essentially doing intervals like that. And it does not feel good. It feels like your brain's getting shrink wrapped. And just for fun, I did blood work to see if there was any type of changes, um, you know, in my hemoglobin or red blood cell count. And there was no changes detectable on those um, after a six to eight week protocol. But there was something else that was changing. And I don't know, I don't know exactly what changed, but it does help whenever I go to altitude and it's no substitute for doing, you know, for living at altitude. Um, my FTP was substantially lower at 10,000 feet than it was at home, but I was able to cope with it a little bit better because, and I've, I've, I've done different protocols, so I don't know how much detail we want to get into, but you can train your respiratory system. And I think that that's something that is emerging in some of the research and some of the ways that we're training now. And it's pretty exciting. How, what kind of percentage would you say you lose as when you go from zero up to, you know, 12,000 feet of Breckenridge? Is it, are you, are you seeing 12% drop or what does that look yeah, like? Yeah, I'd say you? like, yeah, like probably 15 to 20% drop, honestly. Yeah. Like, so whenever and how I do you respect training, that? How do you respect that in the race? Well, you just can't put, you, you have to honor where you're at. So not going over that and not like judging yourself. I actually took, well, I actually took the power meter off my bike because I didn't want to be staring at that number feeling bad. And I went off perceived <laughs> exertion and off right. my respiratory rate. Cause if you're breathing at a, a rate where you're going to blow up your respiratory system and you need to sustain yourself for six days, it's, it's not going to work very well if you're just over cooking yourself. 
So you have to honor that maybe you can't push yourself as hard, but I think that that actually helped me because I've done lots of stage races. I've done 25 plus stage races. And by the last day, um, I was actually really strong and I almost got a stage win on the last day. Whereas, um, in the past I'm, I'm usually cooked by the last day of a stage race. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well back to motherhood, I'd like to see, you know, what, when you went into your postpartum, what were your expectations versus reality? You know, where were you know, where did you like, oh yeah, this is what I expected versus like, I didn't expect this at all. You know, what was that experience like versus your expectations going into it? I think that the expectations the second time around were sort of benchmarked on the first. So I'll talk about the first time around. And it was, I was hoping to be back on the bike within six weeks because that's the general, you know, medical advice. And I don't like general medical advice because it lumps the entire population in and there's people are really different. Um, a great book for people to get is exercising through your pregnancy by James Clapp and Catherine Cram. And I've had Catherine Cram on my podcast specifically to talk about like what guidelines you might want to follow if you're an, a female athlete. Um, but I was able to get back on my bike. I think it was maybe 10 days postpartum and I'm not recommending that for people, but it was based on like how I felt. And so first I got on the trainer, I sat on the seat, like how, to, and it's going to depend on, you know, your birth experience, but how do I feel sitting on the seat? okay, I feel okay. And then I tried doing like a 15 minute ride outside to see how that felt. And how does it feel if I go off road? How does it feel if I ride a trail? So just really honoring that. And how do I feel afterwards? And then there's bleeding that happens after you have a baby. So like the Lokia, is there, is there an increase in the amount of bleeding? So paying attention to your body and honoring where your body is at. Some people need to take three months off after they give birth. So really like not judging yourself, not comparing yourself, but the reason that I'm sharing like my story is because there might be somebody that wanted to get back on their bike, but they were looking at this general guideline and and maybe they missed out on something that they could have done with my daughter. The birth went easier, even easier than my son. And I was back on my bike a week later and back on trails. Um, and I felt like tired because you're not sleeping and all those things, but it just felt good for my mental health to be back on the bike. And for like getting back to fitness, I would say, I did my first race back. It was a hundred mile mountain bike race. It was like four months postpartum in Bend, Oregon, the high cascades. I wasn't at my like fighting potential, but I was enough to contend for the podium. So I, you can, you can do a lot and it requires having a supportive partner. It requires like maybe training less than you think that you should be training and not comparing yourself to where you were pre-pregnancy because your body is still recovering and there's a lot of extra inputs. And if there's any like thread so far that I've heard myself say through this podcast, it's really like listening to where you're at and setting expectations on where you are today, not where you were at your very best. Not like if you've had an injury or something, not comparing yourself to where you were before that injury and just making sure that you honor that because your training is not going to go very well if you aren't honoring what kind of energy that you have today. Yeah. And speaking about energy, I I remember warming up with you one day at at Breck Epic and you mentioned taking in 500 calories an hour because you're breastfeeding. <laughs> and I just was like, oh my Lord, that just squarely hit me. I was like, wow, I, you know, I can't imagine that extra load right on your body, but then during race week and probably pumping, you know, as well. <laughs> so take us through some of, some of those, you know, I guess tips, tricks, like what is that experience like as a mother that's racing a six day stage race at 10,000 feet. That's breastfeeding. (laughs) Yeah, it's challenging. And again, it comes back to having support, but when you're the mom, even having support, you still, there's still things that you have to do when you're the mom. 
So yeah, it's like I had to learn on the fly, how many calories do I need to be consuming per hour? Because I didn't really know because I hadn't done a stage race postpartum breastfeeding and there's no data on that. So I would have the first couple of days, it's like, I, I would feel myself, am I either bonking or am I not digesting the amount of calories that I'm eating? Cause I, cause there's only a certain number of carbohydrates that you can train yourself to digest per hour. So I might not even be digesting that much, but I went off how I felt um, you know, do I feel bonky? And if I felt that way, I would just make sure that I kept eating and then, um, off the bike, making sure that you're eating enough calories. And that's something not just in a stage race, but just in general, if you're an athlete and you're breastfeeding, that was a huge mistake I made with my first son is that I didn't know, like I ate when I was hungry and I didn't know that I needed all these extra calories. And I, cause the guideline is 500 extra calories um, per day, which isn't enough if you're an athlete. And I had, I think that I had low energy availability and I'm actually kind of worried that I'm bumping up against that right now again, because I wouldn't be able to get my heart rate up. I wouldn't be able to, like, I just couldn't produce power on my bike. And I did all the different blood work. I talked to naturopaths, I talked to doctors and nobody could figure out what was wrong. Um, but as soon as I stopped breastfeeding, it was like a switch flipped and I was able to feel good again. So it could also be hormonal. And that's something that a lot of athletes don't talk about. You just see these stories of women returning to sport and kicking butt. And that's like the example that people aspire to, but it's exhausting to be doing all of those things. And then, um, you might have to adjust your training. Like right now it's, it, we were talking about COVID, like I had COVID and I still have like a little bit of a cough and it's been about a month and, but I still don't feel great on my bike. So that means going easy or, or not riding at all and just being patient and thinking big picture. Yeah, certainly that, that big picture. I think I, I've heard you say in the past, something like the consistency, uh, you know, the resilience, patience, the optimism, surrounding yourself with folks that can give you that perspective of the long term. You know, I'm sure you have to like, you play with a lot of those you know, feelings every day when you're not feeling great. Yeah. And I mean, in any challenge that you're taking on, you're going to bump up against, against all of these things. Um, whether you're injured or maybe you're at a time in your life where you just can't put out the, you can't, don't have the time to train or, or ride as much as, or run as much as you love to do. But it's really like accepting number one, accepting the emotions, accepting where you're at and then thinking big picture. How is this, how are these decisions that I'm making going to impact me big picture. So if I have to skip a race, which I'm, I'm probably gonna have to, I had to skip BC bike race, which is a race on my calendar. How does this impact my, my long-term goals and my long-term future? And how is it going to impact if I show up and I have COVID and then it gets worse, or if I'm injured and I show up and I push through injury, which I admittedly have done in some races in the past and it worked out. Okay. But I wouldn't do that now with what I know you have to think long-term and it's hard sometimes because whenever there's something really challenging going on, we become very self-focused and it's not a bad thing. That's just how we survive. But when our focus narrows, it's hard to make decisions. So having things like patients saying, Hey, if I have to keep resting or I've got to keep going easy for a, a, an unknown amount of time, like that's okay. I'm going to be back. And there's where the optimism comes in. I'm it's going to get better. I'm going to be back but having people around you to support that viewpoint instead of people who are like, when are you getting back? Or like who are rushing you? That's also right. a bad thing. I mean, COVID had to be tough. I went through COVID this year. I was out for five weeks with a dry cough, basically no training, wasn't worth to train at all. And the tough part was not knowing when would it end? You know, would it be long COVID? You know, um, is this going to turn around next week? Like it's just, it got it was very hard mentally 
And you haven't been through that before. You, you've been through the two pregnancies. You kind of have some expectations around that when you might be able to come back. But when you're in the middle of COVID, you really don't know when the end of it's going to be. So, you know, how, how long did that take? How long you were out? And what are kind of like benchmarks you set? Like, I'm, I'm going to ride the day because of X. Or I That's won't great- do so much intensity because of whatever it may be. That's a great question and something important to talk about. And Dirk, you actually inspired me to take even more time off when you told me I took this long off. I was like, okay, like it's okay for me to take that long off the bike. But it was funny because I was looking at my Strava and it looked like a precipice. Like I, I think I didn't train for four weeks. Like I didn't even ride. Maybe I rode a bike for 30 minutes in four weeks, which as people just heard, I took a week off after I gave birth. So like... Yeah. COVID took longer to recover from COVID than it took to recover from birth. And for me, it was, it was based on my energy. And of course there was a lot of other, um, challenges because everybody in my family got it at once, including our six month old baby and our two year old. So I had, I saw to take care of everybody, even though I was sick. So I didn't get to just lay in bed and be sick. I had to like keep, you know, pushing myself for lack of a better term And that made me feel really depressed. I couldn't, I couldn't do the things that I like to do for my mental clarity, which is ride my bike and be outside. And then I was exhausted. And then every spare energy I had, I had to take care of my family. So, um, I took even longer than maybe I would have thought I needed. And I waited until I had an entire day where I didn't feel tired, where like I was just dragging. And that took a very long time. Um, and I haven't, return to intensity. It's only been a few, maybe like a week maximum since I've been back on my bike and I'm kind of all over the map. Like some days I feel like myself and other days I really don't feel very good at all. So I'm waiting for that consistency of energy to come back before I try any intensity, but it's complicated by the fact that I am breastfeeding and you know, my baby is getting bigger and her caloric demands are bigger too. So my question is like, is this COVID or is this breastfeeding. And I mentioned the energy issues I had before. So yeah, there's a lot going on there. (laughs) Yeah. I pushed myself too hard at the beginning, maybe even just five days into COVID. I I pushed myself too hard, realized it after three days and then just hung it up. And I was out for five weeks and it, it, it basically took six weeks of training after that. So 11 total weeks to get back to where I was you know? Um, and then I could start to build from there. So it was, you know, 12 weeks before I actually saw improvement. Um, and luckily Breck Epic came at a really great time. That was part of my build back strategy and I was Mm -hmm. healthy by then. Um, but really it was just like this dry cough that I, I knew I needed to get over. So yeah, that was the hardest part of my career. Almost. It seems like, you know, dealing with that unknown. Um, when you weren't training then the last few weeks of, of COVID, you have many other things that you do besides train, but you have what Moxie and Grit Academy, right? Is that a health coaching uh, focused business? Uh, that one. So I, I do coaching. So it, I do health coaching, which is one arm of the coaching. And that's around okay. kind of like holistic well-being. So like mind body connection, like your sleep, your relationships, your environment, um, you know, having more self-compassion. There's just like a lot, there's something called the wheel of health. And there's a bunch okay. of psychological research around the coaching program that I went through that outlines the key areas of health for people and then how to coach because I've, I've done cycling coaching in the past as well. And in cycling coaching, you are asking people questions, but you're also telling them what to do. 
Whereas in coaching, um, this type of coaching, you don't really tell people what to do because that undermines their intrinsic motivation. And coaching is all about behavior change. So in order to help people change their behavior, you need to follow a pro this process that helps people with their intrinsic motivation that doesn't undermine, you know, their own autonomy. So that's kind of the premise of health coaching. And I did a program at Vanderbilt university for that. Aside from that, I, um, before I did health coaching, actually, I released a course called the Moxie and Grit Mindset Academy because over the years, people have asked me, you know, you do these really hard races around the world. How do you like mentally, how do you get through these things? Or you always seem so positive. Like, how are you doing that? And this was about 10 years ago. So I started asking myself, well, how am I doing that? <laughs> so I went back and I like reverse engineered, um, how I'm doing that. And I was led to, um, you know, positive psychology, humanistic psychology, self-actualization, like all of this stuff. So I spent the last 10 years studying psychology, trying to figure out what do we need to perform at our best, whether it's on the bike or not. So I put this mindset Academy together because I wanted to share all the things that have helped me over the years that I've talked about in my public speaking and like mentoring people so that people had access to that so that they could train their mind. Cause a lot of times we don't train our mind. We just try and deal with it in the moment when we're in a race or whatever, but you have to front load optimism. You have to front load, um, you know, what your goals are for the day or for the race, how to have more, um, you know, more confidence and deal with anxiety and all these things. And I'm happy that it's become a big part of, of training now. I think it's a main, a main thing that people are talking about, but a couple years ago, even I, I feel like people just still weren't really talking about it very much. And I think that, our mind is what separates us at the top level and even not at the top level. Um, so I'll just, yeah, I'll just put a pin in that. <laughs> let you go. Is that an online course or is that one-on-one -on -one coaching through that? It's academy? an online course. Yeah. So okay. there's like one-on-one -on -one coaching I do in addition to that. Um, because as I mentioned, teaching is different than coaching and the Moxie and Grit Mindset Academy is teaching with a little bit of prompting and it has like a workbook. So there's self-inquiry involved, but the teaching, the coaching process is different because it's guiding somebody down, um, towards their goals and what their specific goals are. Whereas, uh, an online self-paced course is more about like learning, you know, learning yourself, what these concepts mean, and then how you can figure out how to apply them. Right. And you mentioned mindset. I mean, you have to work on that. You have to preload some of these, I guess, habits. I mean, you, you interviewed, uh, what James clear of atomic habits. Isn't that, isn't that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love, yeah. Go into that. I love how I, I think fake it till you make it. Like he, it's his, yeah, his like take on that is, and of course, you know, he's the, he's the foremost, uh, I guess, expert author in this, in this realm, but he says every vote ever, every action you take is a vote for the type of person that you want to become. So really he's all about identity-based habits. So if you're going to be doing something, what type of decisions would somebody that you want to be like be doing and then do that instead of like trying to go through this muck of, and be, and not having any clarity of what you want to be. And it, that's an oversimplified version. And another um, thing that I thought came out of that book and also something that I had been practicing is the, the consistency showing up. And he calls it, I think he calls it the two minute rule. I call it just showing up because a lot of times we're not motivated. We're waiting to feel motivated before we start something, whether it's like cooking a meal or taking out the recycling or going for a bike ride. Like I, I just got to be motivated and then I'll start. But motivation follows action, not the other way around. So do something for a couple of minutes, make the, make the um, barrier to entry so low that it's almost ridiculous to not get started and then decide what you want to do after that. 
And that's something that I really use in pregnancy because a lot of times you're exhausted. You don't feel like getting out on your bike. It's like the last thing you want to do, but then you start and then you're like, after a couple of minutes, okay, you know, now I'm, I feel like I want to keep going, but I'll add the caveat that there are times where you should turn around and go home. You do get started and you still don't feel like it. And if you still don't feel like it after a little while, maybe you should consider going home because you don't want to burn yourself out. Yeah, no, it's like these triggers of you've set the plan in action. You know, I, 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 I hate having a dirty bike. So I, you know, I ha I have the muddy bike, I come home and I know like if I clean it, you know, after the ride, I know tomorrow I'm going to be like more motivated to get on the bike. And if my clothing is set out, you know, in the morning and my shoes are there and it's just the little things that add up one after another that just lead to the action. Um, and I also have heard you speak about just get started, just do it. Don't wait for the perfect time. There's no like mm -hmm. perfect time to become what you want to be. Exactly. Like that's going back to, um, picking yourself. Like people will wait till they're an expert. Like I have to be an expert. Otherwise I can't get started. And, or I have to like read one more thing or somebody has to tell me that I'm good enough to get started. And you have to realize that you're going to grow as, as you start something. So like you're going to, you're going to suck whenever you start at something new. That's just how it is. That's part of the process. So embrace that and then get excited about what comes next. So like put your foot, put your one foot forward and then the next, and then be committed to the growth and the process and like loving the work. There's something that I say, um, it's kind of like, it's called the, I say the work is the reward. And what that means is that a lot of times we look at this outcome of something like, Oh, I, I'm going to like finish Leadville or I'm going to run a marathon or like we're looking at these outcomes and we're waiting to feel a certain way whenever we achieve that outcome. But really you're not even entitled to the outcome. Like you might line up for Leadville and things might happen and you might not finish. So what is the reward here? It's the work. It's, it's who you become along the way. It's what you do every single day. And we, we just talked about COVID we've talked about injury and a lot of us get really sad whenever we can't do the work, but then there's days where we're, we're like, don't want to do the work. So just realizing that the work in and of itself is the reward, not the outcome of the work and that, and that you're entitled to the work, but not the outcome is something that I just remind myself all the time. And that's why I say the work is the reward in like a really simple way as one of my guiding principles. Yeah, absolutely. I can really feel that. I'm, I'm always registered for a race. <laughs> I'm, I've always put money on the line out in the future. It's on the calendar. And then that kind of builds the momentum from there. Um, so I, I registered for, it's so funny, the Breck Epic actually paid for in like 2019 and then COVID came and then which pushed to 2021 and I couldn't make that date. And then it, they allowed me to push it to 2022, but you know, I always have something on the calendar that kind of keeps that underlying motivation in a way, like I can tap into that. Um, and, a, and a, and a goal that's out there. So what, what, what are some future goals that, that you have? Um, I know you're addicted to the process, but what kind of, what's the outcome going to be in the next 18 months or so in terms of your race calendar? I'm looking forward to putting together an entire season, um, ah. next year. Cause it's, it's been a yeah. while for me because right. I got, well, I did six months of racing in 2019 before I got pregnant. So I started super early in the year so that I felt like I had a full season under my belt before I tried to get pregnant, but it had been three years since I had lined up, um, for a start line. I had two kids in that process because there's pregnancy and then there was, 
I had my son March, 2020. So then there was, and I was ready to race three months postpartum, but then there was no races. Then in 2021, I live in Canada now. So the border was closed, so I couldn't race. So I thought, well, if we're going to have another kid, I might as well get pregnant now because I can't leave the country (laughs) anyway. So yeah, when all was said and done, and then some of my earlier, um, races in 2022 this year got canceled still because of COVID. So yeah, it was three years before I could race again. And that is a good testament to loving the, I like, I love mountain biking. I don't need a race to love mountain biking, but I love racing. So next year I'm excited to put together a full season with, you know, hopefully like three or four stage races and a couple hundred milers. And my racing looks a little bit different now than it did before kids, because I used to travel all over the world, like finding like the, the coolest or the coolest stage race, or maybe the stage race in the most unknown part of the world to go do it for the adventure aspect of it. So the international piece, um, I'm looking forward to adding that back in, but it might look like just one international stage race per year instead of, you know, five, but I'm still just so excited about that. And being able to come back and race domestically again, after so long racing internationally is so rewarding because I love our community that like North America has awesome people and it's just so cool and so rewarding to be back in that. Cause you can't get that whenever you're out on your, on your bike by yourself, or even with a few people in your town, like the whole community at a race is really what makes it special. Yeah. I mean, mountain bike stage racing is so fun. So cool. I really haven't, I Breck Epic, I'm sad to say is my first and only I've done a lot of stage races on the road around the uh-huh. world, Malaysia and Europe, but never done a mountain bike stage race. Luckily, I got to do it after I did Steamboat Gravel. I had a couple of days off, and I did the three-day Breck Epic, That's not the six. That's your first one. Like, I know. I didn't do the six like you. Maybe I'll do that someday. Um, but yeah, it was such a great, great experience. Um, tell us about your best experience uh, You know, uh, at I don't know, some crazy far-off land. Well, if people know me, they're probably, you know, I'm going to talk about Nepal. <laughs> oh. um, if you can see behind me. For those who can't see, there's, I have a picture of a mandala and then a picture of me riding next to a giant white yak. Mm. And I did this race called the yak attack in 2012, and it went across the Himalayas in Nepal. And at that point I hadn't really traveled very much around the world and no woman had ever completed this race before. Wow! And it was, it's like a legit kind of backcountry style race. So it's 10 days. If something happens to you out there there's no way to get out. Like there at that time, there was no roads or anything. So you would have to basically hike back to Kathmandu by yourself and get the medical attention that you needed and figure out all of that. So that was a fear. And then the race went up to almost 18,000 feet, the, the highest mountain pass wow. in the world, the wrong law pass. It's like 17,769 feet. So it was this epic adventure and it took a lot of courage for me to get on a plane. I had never been, you know, I've been to Brazil for one bike race and that was like the only international racing experience I had. So like get on this plane, go to Nepal, do this race and then everything went wrong and I did a Ted talk on it. So you, I, I won't, I won't uh, totally spoil it for you, but <laughs> so go look that up. <laughs> so I, I was able to finish the race. Uh, my brakes failed on the top of the mountain pass because they don't test brakes at 18,000 feet because who takes their bike up to 18,000 feet to ride. And I had to do lots of walking and I had to figure out what success meant to me. And that was really important to me to do that race because it taught me like, who, who do I want to be? What kind of racer do I want to be? What type of experiences do I want to have in my future? And that's informed the last 10 years of my career. So that race was a really impactful race. Um, I went back and did it again in 2013 and anyone who's been into Paul, whether you're there for a race, you're there for, you know, whatever there, there's like guided rides you could do. There's, there's cool things that you could do to help out in the community in Nepal. 
it's just a, it's just a life-changing experience to go there. Hmm. Okay. That's, that's a lot about you, but what about how you serve others in your coaching career, both the fitness and the cycling coaching side of things? Why, why do you do that? What's your purpose? What's your mission? Uh, you know, why is it so I guess, exciting? I hope for you. I love being able to help people go after that thing, whatever that thing is, whether if it's biking, if it's something else that that's in the back of their mind, because I think the world would be better if people did that thing that lit them up because they'd be living more in line with their purpose or just finding more meaning in their lives. And a lot of us are afraid to go after that thing. Like maybe, maybe you were like me, you know, and somebody didn't believe in you and you really wanted to try and you didn't have whatever it is inside of you to go after it. And then you spent the rest of your life wishing that you had tried for that thing. So I want to help people do that. And it, again, it doesn't have to be cycling, but it takes courage and it takes support to, to go after what you want to do. And there's a lot of things along the way that make you want to give up because it's not easy to, um, put your hand up and say, I'm going to go after this thing. And it might see, it might sound ridiculous, this huge goal. And I just want to help people be better every day. And initially it's interesting. Like when I started racing, I wanted to race because I wanted to prove myself. I wanted to prove that I was good to other people, to myself. And I wanted that validation. And it used to be embarrassing to admit that, but it's been so long that I, I'm kind of separate from that now. And then I realized like, wait a second, there's so much more to this than, than just like proving myself. I can help other people find out what makes them tick and help other people go after those things. So that has informed every single decision that I make now. Like, why do I have a podcast? It's so I can help other people, number one, have a platform to share things that they're passionate about. But number two, like educate people. So maybe that there's things that they want to learn across all of these different realms of high, high performance and well-being so that they can go after that. And that's like why I've written for multiple publications. It's why I do social media. It's why I do everything. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's also in some ways selfish because I get something out of helping others too. And that inspires me. Yeah, no, I def I definitely get you. You know, I I want to help people reach their their potential. You know, and like my medium has been Training Peaks. You know, and so mm -hmm. I feel it's so blessed that I've been able to help uh, other coaches like you to help kind of help other people reach their purpose. How can people uh, find out more about you on social or any websites they can find you at? Yeah, you can go to sonyalooney.com and I have a newsletter and a podcast and um, I'm on, I'm probably most active on Instagram and Twitter and that's at Sonia Looney. And yeah, I'd love to hear from you. And if there's something I said that that you're curious about, I'd love to, to help out. Super. Yeah. Awesome. Well, hopefully I'll see you at another mountain bike stage race in the next year or so. Come on <laughs> up and do single track six in BC. <laughs> oh yeah. I got to, I'll mountain bike up there sometime. I've only skied up there. So that that's good enough. <laughs> Thanks, Sonia. Thank you.